We've been talking about growing up. And it's not just, there's a lot at stake of whether we grow up or not. Growing up spiritually, growing up emotionally, growing up in all the areas of life. And I really feel there's a reason why God put this on my heart for the beginning of this year. And we have one more message to go in this. Um, And today what we're going to do is we're going to begin to bring a focus to what we're talking about. We've been talking about, um, we use this, I love this example because it's, uh, the picture at first looks like it's a little boy trying to wear his father's suit. But in reality, what this series is about is that's really a grown man suit and the, with, who's a little boy inside. And this is where a lot of us are. We walk around wearing outwardly spiritually grown-up clothes. We talk grown-up, we, we, we come to church and act grown-up. But are we really grown up on the inside? Because the inside is what counts. <clears throat> so often that, that we judge people, and the church at Corinth was a great example of that. They thought they were, we talked about them for several weeks. They thought they were so spiritual. In fact, they were so spiritual they wouldn't let Paul in. The Apostle Paul who birthed the church because he wasn't spiritual enough. Spiritual pride can take you places, actually spiritual pride can take you right to hell. Because hell was created for the ultimate spiritual pride, which was Lucifer, who then became Satan. And he was lifted up because he thought he was so spiritual that he was equal with God. And so spiritual pride is so dangerous because we think because we're acting a certain way on the outside that we're there. And so what we've begun to look at is the process of growing and maturing. And we all need to grow and mature. And we looked at the stages that our physical body goes through from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. And we saw that each of those stages has characteristics and a purpose the way God ordained them. And you need to move from one stage to another and it takes a certain atmosphere in a home the way God designed it to move from one stage to another so that as a child grows up and matures and goes off into the world that they are a mature adult ready to be part, productive and contributing part of, the, of society. Well, the tra- same is true spiritually. When somebody's born again, they come to an altar here or maybe in your home or on the job. They're born again. They may be 35 years old. They may be president of the United States. But in spiritually inside, they're a baby. And they need to be nourished and taken care of so that that baby on the inside can grow and mature just the way their physical body had to grow and mature. So we've talked about all of that. We've talked about what, what is the atmosphere that's necessary to provide that for that growth, successful growth and maturing from one stage to another. And we saw that in a physical home, it's a loving mother, a loving father. This is the ideal. We recognize that in society today, that, that ideal is not out there very often. But we're looking at ideals because that's what we need to be measured towards. And then we talked about that ideal, that, 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 that family atmosphere, this to, to, to in, in, in create that loving atmosphere for Christians to grow is the local church. This is a family. We're part of the body of Christ, but we don't relate, can't relate this morning to everybody else in the body of Christ. But God has brought us here to relate to one another as the body of Christ, to care for one another, to encourage one another. All the things that happen within a family, we saw that, that part of a, a healthy family is where there are chores assigned to children so that they can learn responsibility that this family does not exist for them and for their pleasure, but they need to grow and learn to contribute and give back 
to something because they're part of something larger. In the same way God has ordained the church to be made up of individuals that come together and contribute to the overall welfare and growth of the family right here in the local church. And that's in Ephesians 4. We've looked at that before. And then last week we talked about the, the, the ingredient that's necessary for a family to grow. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, says to the church at Corinth that he was correcting, that was acting like children. He says, you have, ten, you have thousands of teachers, but not many fathers. And what he was saying is that, that a family needs a father. It, God's ideal is that a family has a father that represents the authority and order and the love and the compassion but brings order and sometimes discipline and correction to the family. And we saw last week examples how the Apostle Paul brought that kind of loving correction and discipline to, a, to, the, to the church at Corinth. And we saw, and, and, and as a result, we recognize that, that in church today, and I certainly don't know all the churches, I don't know very many of them, but church today, by and large, you don't have that element of correction. You don't have that element of discipline because we're trying to grow big churches and there's nothing wrong with large churches as long as it is a cohesive family where there's loving correction and discipline, loving encouragement, loving feeding, and all of those things. So that's what we've talked about. Now what we want to do is we want to begin to talk about if, if, if we're growing, and we talked about how, how uh, everything in the kingdom of God works by seed time and harvest, that God, a seed is sown, and in that seed is the, everything that's necessary for that plant to grow and mature and become strong. And, and the evidence of its strong health is it produces, it produces fruit. For Valentine's Day, my wife said, I, don't want, I usually would get a rose. I don't want roses, but I found a little rose bush I could get her. And, and you know, it's a, in a little ceramic pot with these little roses. I feel at least that's safe. They won't die out, you know. And then I noticed a while ago that, that, that you know, some of them are starting to shrivel up. So I can tell the health of the plant by the fruit that's coming out of it. And, but but the, that, that fruit is in the seed. And we've talked about that when God created you and, and, and when God sowed His seed of eternal life into you by the Holy Spirit, in that seed of eternal life, in that newborn child of God in the inside of you, was all that was necessary to grow and mature into a full-blown child of God, producing fruit, healthy fruit. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, You didn't choose me, I chose you, and I chose you that you would bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. And earlier He said that you'd bear much fruit. So we're to be bearing fruit, but that fruit is not because we work hard to do it. It's because we, uh, we foster and allow the nature that God's put in us. We provide what's necessary for that seed to grow, become a, a, a blade, then a stalk, then an ear, and then produce the fruit. And we've talked all about that. But what's the model? What's the goal? And that's the title this morning, The Goal. When I was a lawyer, I did most of my work was doing commercial real estate. I represented architects, I represented developers, I represented the banks or the, or the uh, trust that funded those. I also represented them when they went under, too. Uh, and, and so as a result, I dealt with large construction projects a lot. And I never saw a large construction project where the builders just showed up at the site with hammers and nails and concrete and just started doing something. It always started in an architect's office and they would sit down. In fact, when we did the stage changes, we hired an architect. 
I had an idea what I wanted, but I wanted somebody that could come up with a drawing. It's called a rendering, which the architect listens to what you desire, your dream, and then they go back and they do their magic and they come back and show you a, a picture, a drawing of what they can say they can build for you. And so that gives you an image of what you want it to be. One of our sons is an artist. He's a commercial artist, but he's an artist. And when he was living at home and still drawing things, I would ask him this question. I would say, Mark, when you, when you are drawing something, do you already have a sense in you of what that is? He says, yeah, I don't have the details, but I can tell when I'm finished if what's on that paper represents what's in here. And so there has to be an image a goal, something that you're shooting for, because otherwise it, it, it defines what you do. So if an architect's going to build, build a one-story uh, one office building, they're not going to have to hire a bunch of cranes. The, the, it, what, the, the goal determines what equipment you need, what supplies you need. Everything you need is determined by the goal that's set before you. It also helps you make decisions of what to do and what not to do. And the problem is that most Christians go through life without any goal, without any image. But when God sowed in you and God sowed in me the seed of eternal life, when God sowed in you and God sowed in me, that child of God that was a seed, God had a vision. God had a vision and a goal and an image of what He wanted you to grow into. When God sowed this church almost 39 years ago, in fact, next Sunday it is 39 years, God had a vision of what this church was to become and do. He could see it. And He sowed enough of it in a man from Texas, Sam Smith and his wife Donna, to get them up here 39 years ago, to begin this work by faith. And so we're going to talk about this goal, this image, what it is that God has. Because if we're not conscious of that, see, in a way that picture shows the goal is to grow up. That's why that little boy's wearing the suit. Because he wants to grow up so he can fill out the suit. But notice the suit's there. He needs to grow up to fill out the suit. This is what the little boy's thinking. So I can be like my father. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The same is true spiritually. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 and we can begin to see what this model is. Romans, if I had to have only one chapter, I was on a desert island and I could have only one chapter from the Bible, it would be this chapter. Because this chapter alone contains the gospel in essence. So much so that I've, most of it I have to memory. But we're going to come down to a verse that's often misunderstood. Verse 28, Romans 8, 28. For we know, all right, let's find out what we know, that all things work together for good. That's where most people stop. Well, after all, I know this disaster happened, but we know that all things work together for good. And there's a, there's a philosophy out there, there's a theology out there that, that whatever happens is God's will. Oh, it's very prevalent. Whatever happens is God's will. So we need to learn to accept whatever happens as God's will. 
Well, what that leaves out is one major component that the Bible teaches is that, that Satan is the god of this world. He's the ruler of the air, it says. Satan's the god of this world. And so if the god of this world is in charge of this world, then some things that happen may be done by the god of this world, not by the god of heaven. We have an adversary, the Bible says. Someone that's opposing us. Someone that's trying to deceive us. So in many cases, the bad things that are happening is because we allowed ourselves to be deceived. And did it to ourselves. But notice what it says. We know, this is Paul writing, that all things work together for good to those who love... There's a condition now. There's two conditions here. All things don't work together for good for everybody. But for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So we've been called according to His purpose. Not our purpose. Not my purpose for this church. And what is that purpose? Verse 29. For whom He foreknew, knew ahead of time, He predestined, don't stumble on that word, He just means He planned ahead of for to be conformed to the image of His Son. So Paul's saying, all things work together for good to those who love God and who God has called to be conformed to the image of His Son. So if we're accepting God's purpose, which is that we would be conformed, that word means changed, into the image of His Son, in this uh, course that I've taught in School of Ministry, and I've taught it here on Wednesdays a couple of times, uh, on renewing the mind. There's a verse in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1 says, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Verse 2 says, and, and, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Do not be conformed to this word. The word conform there means to be pressured from the outside like a mold pressures something. Like the, the, the uh, coins are, the, the impression is made by, by a mold that presses down on them with great force. The world is trying to pressure us from the outside so that we look like and talk like and and act like the world, so that the world can tell no difference between us. Because when you're born again, God's life, as I've said, the seed of God's life, is sown in you by the Holy Spirit. And if the devil can't keep you from being saved, if he can't keep that seed from being planted in you, then his next strategy is to keep it from showing up on the outside so that anybody else can see the difference. He wants to keep that seed, that life of God, that 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 image of Christ on the inside of you. He wants to keep it under so much pressure that it never comes out of you so that you don't look any different than the world. So the world looks at you and says, ah, they're a Christian. So what? They're just like us. They talk like us. They react like us. They dress like us. They do everything like us. But we're to be transformed, Romans 12.2 says. That word means literally to take what's on the inside of you and work it to come to the outside so that it can be seen. 
That's why Philippians says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work it out so you get saved and go to heaven. He's saying take the salvation God's put in you and allow Him to work it to the outside so that it shows up. There was an old saying, and we did a, 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 a on a retreat, retreat at another church we grew up in, or what we, we were saved in, um, is it, if you were ever charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? And we did a mock trial of that. So that's maybe somewhere else. Okay. So to be conformed to the image of... So God's goal for your life is to conform you and us together as the body of Christ here to the image of His Christ, that Jesus, His Son, may be the firstborn among many brethren. So the image, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. The image, the model, the, 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 the architect's rendering that God has on His bulletin board for you, for me, for this church, is that we be conformed, we grow up and mature literally into the image of Christ. Until we, remember we looked at this series of scriptures, it says that we saw several, several weeks ago, don't turn there, but in verse 11 it says, the ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, have been given to the church to, to equip the church, the saints, that's all of us, to do the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry, until, and this was the next verse, until we all, say all, all. God doesn't want to leave any of you out. We all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That doesn't mean perfect that you never make a mistake. That means completeness. In other words, that the image of who you're supposed to be unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. God's goal for your life is nothing short of conforming you to the image of Christ. So that's not possible. Well, I guess God's wrong. No, God put in you the seed. He put in you the seed. And then He put His own Spirit in you. He put... And so this, just as it's as certain that a tomato plant will produce tomatoes, if it's planted in the ground, and if it's watered and it gets light, it will produce tomatoes. If you follow the Spirit of God, if you allow Him to work in your life, it is just as certain that He'll produce Christ in you as that plant will produce tomatoes. Because we looked at the Scripture, because it is God in you who is at work to do, to will and to do His good pleasure. God is at work in you. And all we can do is frustrate His work and stop His work. We don't have to make it happen. We just have to learn to cooperate with Him as He allows His work to come out in us. Go down to verse 20. 420. Paul says, But you've not so learned Christ, because he was correcting them. Verse 21. If indeed you've heard Him and have been taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Next verse. That you put off concerning your formal conduct the old man which grows corrupt 
according to deceitful lust. Paul's talking here. He's now the first. I've got to be careful because I can Ephesians. I can get off in, not off track, but off my point. Is is the first three chapters? He's telling them what God's done for him in Christ, and now he's telling them he's addressing things to help them grow up. So he's saying now, put off your old. Stop acting like your old person. Stop acting like who you used to be. Because that person grows corrupt according to seedful lust. Your old man died. Why are you carrying the corpse around? Your old man died. There was a funeral when you came to Christ. Why are you carrying the corpse around? Because you know what would happen to a corpse if you carried it around for a while? And that's what it's like when a Christian continues to act and does uh, act like Christ and doesn't grow up, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. Verse twenty-three. But be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change how you think. That's the purpose of this series. Change how you think about yourself. Change how you think about what God's who God's put in you. Change what you think about the world. That you put on the new man. Which was created according to God, in true according to God means according to His image, in true righteousness and holiness. You can't put on. I got up this morning. And I already. I usually plan Saturday night what I'm going to wear, and I but and I decided to wear this particular suit with pinstripes in it, and I could only put it on because I have it. In fact, the pants had to be repaired because something had uh, the, the, the zipper had had had, a, had torn somewhere. So my, Anita took it to. Ha- so I, I, when I saw the it come back from the tailor, I knew I could put it, but I couldn't put it on if it didn't come back. If I don't, if you don't have something, you, so if he's telling you to put something on, that means you already have it. If he's, to, if he's telling you to put on Christ, that means you already have you have the seed in you. Now it has to grow and mature. But with most of us, the time to grow. Is ahead of our actual growth. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Now, what we're going to begin to look at now is what this image of Christ looks like. Now, understand this. I better read my notes because I don't want to miss something here. We're going to look at the image of Christ, our model. But remember, this is not an ideal that we're working hard to get to. I need to say that again. What we're going to talk about, and the image of Christ that the Bible shows us, especially in the New Testament, is not some ideal that you and I are to work hard to try harder to measure up. I'm going to be more like Christ today. The, the more you do that, the more you fail. That's called the law. But what we learned is, and what we've just been talking about, God has put in you. The seed of His Son. All that's necessary for you to mature into the image of Christ is already in you. You don't have to work hard to make it happen. What we have to do is learn to cooperate with that life in us, because He will work in you to make it happen. I'll give you an example of that. When I got saved, we were not. I was not in a, the church that we were in. wasn't saved. But we got, I got saved in my living room. And, and, and uh, we were going to a church that was dead. It was made of stone on the outside. It was dead. 
The pastor's messages were travel logs about his trips to Europe during the summer and nice homilies and little examples of things, but there was no spiritual life. And we get, I get saved in my living room. Fortunately, God, it's a long story. I've shared my testimony before. So I have no one telling me, stop doing this and start doing this. I have no one sitting over me saying, John, you shouldn't, you, you know, you, you should stop smoking that pipe. John, you should stop drinking now because you're a Christian. John, you, I had none of those doing that. But I began to notice that I could hunger and read my Bible and I start trying to learn what it is to pray, I found things started happening inside of me. I started finding that I wanted to go in a different direction than I used to want to go. I found that things I used to say and do now bothered me. And I began to, what's going on inside of me? And I found I was being challenged on the inside. And it's like, what is going on? And it wasn't until later I realized, see, when I, we invite Jesus in to fix something usually. Okay? But we don't understand, He brings a whole construction crew in. Because his goal isn't just your goal to fix what you brought him in for. I, I wanted to get rid of the guilt. So I needed Jesus in my life. But you bring him in, he brings, he brings architect's plans, he brings construction workers. It's called the Holy Spirit. And in the Word of God is the, is the manual. And he brings these in and he begins to work in you whether you know it or not. And I, and I realized he wants to expand me. And so I found out things in my life, boundaries I had, he started knocking the boundaries down. So I started associating with people I would not normally have associated with. He's moving the boundaries of my old life because he's at work in me to produce this image of Christ. So it's not something we have to say every day, oh, I'm going to be more like Christ. I'm going to be more like Christ. That will, you will fail. And even if you were to succeed, it wouldn't please Him. He wants us to learn to cooperate with Him as He does this job of growing. So what are we going to... Let's look at a couple of things, first of all. And these are not the typical things. Let's look at Jesus and what He was like, what His image was like. The first thing is that Jesus did is He reflected the image of God to man. He reflected the image of God to man. And John, they're not going to put these up. I've got too many scriptures to go through. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, verse 2 says. He was in the beginning with God. So in the beginning was God the Father and the Word. That's the Greek word logos, which means the full expression. So in the beginning, John's telling us, was God the Father and the Son that was the chip off the old block. The full expression of the Father. And then verse 14 says that full expression of the Father became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, we beheld the glory of the Father when we saw the Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus has a number of places in John where He says these things. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He's the outshining of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Hebrews 1, 3. John 14, 9, Jesus said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So one of His purposes was to reveal the Father was what He's like to people that had worshipped Him but didn't know Him as Father. They knew Him as God. They knew Him as the God that came down on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning. 
But they didn't know him as a God that loved them. They didn't know him as a God that cared for them. They didn't know him as a God that disciplined. They didn't know him, and, and they didn't know he was full of grace and truth. Goes on after that in John chapter... I, no, I don't have time to go there. I've got to move on. So what are we to do? We just saw Ephesians 4, 15. We're to grow up into His image. We are to be the image of Christ in the earth. Uh, I didn't put this scripture in. I had it and took it out because there's so many to cover this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Imitate me. Uh, and we saw last week in Ephesians 5, 1. says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Ephesians 1 is 11, 1 Corinthians 11, there's, a, there's a, a great pattern there. And it basically goes this. It says, Christ was the image of His Father, and a man is to be the image of Christ. And if the man is an image of Christ, and his wife is under him, what, then, then she will reflect what he's reflected to her. So we often can look at that and say, well, the order is God's in charge, the son's second, the man's the boss, and the wife is under him. That's not what that's talking about. What it's saying is Christ reflects to the husband the father. And if the, fa- if the husband is in relationship with Christ, then he'll re- represent Christ to his wife so that in the wife you'll see Christ from the father, from the husband, from the son, from the father. So if it's done right, the glory of the father will go down the chain, be reflected in the son, in the husband, and then in the wife. So you ought to know what kind of husband I'm like by what you see in my wife. That went over really big. That went over really big. Glory, hallelujah. Because it's convicting. So the second, first purpose is he came and reflected the image of God to man. The second thing about his life that we want to talk about is the only purpose, the only this will set you free, you'll learn this one. The only purpose of his life was to do his Father's will on the earth. The only purpose. In Luke chapter 2 is a story of Jesus. Of Jesus, when he's 12 years old, his parents take him to the, to the, to the temple for fa- Passover, for the feast. And on their way home, about three days home, they're, they're looking around, and where's little Jesus? We don't, we don't see him. Nobody, where is he? That, that may sound irresponsible to you, but they traveled as a, as a village. And so it's kind of like here sometimes, you know, kids all intermingle with each other, and they have fun with each other. So they, but after three days, they realize, wait a minute, we, he should have shown up for supper last night, and we didn't see him. So mom and dad head back to Jerusalem, and they look it all around, and finally they, I don't know why it dawns on them later on, but they look in the temple. And here's Jesus sitting with the scribes and Pharisees and debating back and forth with them. And his parents are like normal parents. I like that. They're mad at him because he embarrassed them because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And they said, don't you know what you've done to us? And here's the 12-year-old Jesus says, don't you understand that I'd be about my father's business 
12 years of age, he already had an awareness that he had a bi- his father's business here was what he was about. Now, I wonder how Joseph heard that because Joseph was his stepfather in a sense because he wasn't the father of his body. And he was a carpenter and Jesus would have learned under him that business. But what he was dawning on him is, no, I'm about my heavenly father's business. In John... um, I got him here somewhere. Oh, there we are. In John 5.19, Jesus says, Jesus answered said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do, for whatever He does, the Son does. John 5.30, I can of Myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and My judgment, listen to this, as I hear, I judge, and My judgment is righteous. Why? Because I don't seek to do My own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We try to exercise our own judgments on our own righteousness. And Jesus said, the only standing I have to judge what's right or wrong is the only reason I'm here is to do my Father's will. John 6, 38. For I've come down to heaven not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 4, 34. This is where Jesus is at the, at the, with the woman at the well. And He is... Um, uh, we, went, we spent a whole series on this several years ago. And, and He's been witnessing to this woman at the well and she's now running down into the village of Samaria to tell, tell her the friends, tell the people in there, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And the disciples come back and they see this and they've, they went in there to get food because that's all they can think about as some of us on Sunday morning in church didn't, okay so they run down to get to, to, they went to McDonald's or Burger King or Panera whatever and they've come back with food for their master and they think he's going to be so pleased I said master you know here's food what was this all about he says you don't understand my meat my food is to do the will of him who sent me think about what food is not too hard Food is what you have an appetite for. Especially about, with about 20 minutes to go in the service. <laughs> food is what you have an appetite. Food is what you need to sustain you. They're not necessarily the same thing. And so Jesus is saying, what my appetite is for, what my hunger is for, what satisfies me and gives life is to do my Father's will. He wasn't struggling with, oh, I don't want to do the will of God. He understood. He had experienced committing my whole life to do His will is what I was made for. Therefore, it's what satisfies me and it's what you and I were made for. And we try to fill our lives with so many other things to get that satisfaction, to satisfy that hunger, to fill us up and give us strength. We try to draw and eat the foods of the things of the world. And I'm not talking about natural food. I'm talking about entertainment, the things that the world provides. And we try to fill ourselves up on that. And then we wonder why we don't have a desire for the things of God. John 14... 
At the end of his discussion, Jesus said, I can no longer, I'm no longer going to be with you. For the ruler of this world is coming, and he's found nothing in me. Jesus is saying, I'm finished my course, and Satan's found nothing in my life, nothing, that he can get a hold of. That tells me that Satan comes to our life to see what we'll let him get a hold of. Those of you that follow football, when I grew up following football, they wore loose jerseys. And then what they began to realize to some of these linemen is if you tie the jersey up tight, because what would happen is when you're trying to block somebody, grab a hold of your jersey if they couldn't tackle you. It was holding, but they would do that, try to not get caught. And then they began to come up with jerseys that were like spandex that were so tight that you couldn't, there was nothing to get a hold of to tackle you, to impede you. And Jesus is saying, Satan's tried, but he can't get a hold. There's nothing, there's nothing to get a hold of to, to, to slow me down. Why? Because there was nothing of Jesus himself sticking out. The only access Satan has to distract you, to destroy you, to delay you, is when you stick out and it's not just Jesus. The only thing Satan can get a hold of is you. He can't get a hold of Jesus in you. It's you. This is why he gets you to try to look at you. They don't pay attention to me. They don't do this. I, I, I'll share this with you. Oh God, do I have to? <laughs> only if you'll share yours. No. I was getting my microphone on in there and getting ready to come out and I was looking in the mirror with this pink shirt and I said, gee, you look pretty good today. And I caught the thought. That seems innocent. But I caught the thought because it was directing attention at me. And I caught the thought and I cast the thought down. Sounds like it's an innocent thought, but that thought, if I don't address it, the next thought is, but you know, you're pretty good today. And he who is without sin can throw the first stone. <clears throat> we got to move on. So what about us? Second Corinthians chapter 5. This is the verse that last, last January, when we were on vacation in Florida, we were going to a church that we go to down there, and the, the pastor was preaching on following Christ. I don't remember exactly what he was preaching on. Well, I sort of do. And, and he didn't quote this verse, but this verse went off in me. Second Corinthians chapter 5. If you haven't put it up there, otherwise I'll have to read it. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. Verse 15. And he died for all that those who live... So who did... Anybody in here he died for? Amen. Better be that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. And here's what we've done. We've allowed Christ in our life. We've given Him a place in our life. We give Him a place on Sunday morning. Some of you give Him a place on Wednesday night. More of you need to do that. I don't know how you go through the week without a midweek service. I don't know. So many churches don't do that. 
but we've got a good group of people that come here. We try to give you good teaching and there's some special things we're going to do family oriented this year on Wednesday nights. So you need to be here. I know it's a busy schedule, but I used to drive, I don't want to get off on that, an hour from work to get here on Wednesday nights when I was practicing law. But we live our lives for ourselves and we include God in it. But that's not the model. The models we're supposed to live our life for Him and then He'll... I think there's a scripture that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Okay, we've got to move on. Matthew chapter 7. These are very convicting verses. Not everyone, not everyone, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful things in your name? We've done things for you. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, look at that word, lawlessness. He's saying here, that just because we say we're doing things for Him and doing acts in His name doesn't mean He's Lord. Because what does Lord mean? You live for His purposes. Go back to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. That doesn't mean we, find, we think we know what God's will is, and then we decide and go carry it out. It means my life is submitted and available to do His will. Whatever that means. This is the ideal. This is the growing place. This is where Christ was. And we're called to do the same. So what are we called to do? The, oh, the third thing, the third thing about His nature. The essence of His nature is love. That's a sacrificial love. The word is agape. We've talked about this before. So wh- how did Jesus act out this love? Remember He said, this is my commandment. We're going to look in there in a minute. That you love one another as I have loved you. How did He love us? He took response. Let's think of this. This is so important. Because we talk about, well, we need to forgive. He forgave. No, think, think about what He did. He took upon Himself... Your sin and my sin. He took upon Himself the guilt, the sin, and the shame from those, all of us, who were not worthy in ourselves to untie His sandal. We were not worthy to be in His presence. Romans chapter 5 says He died for the ungodly. We forget what we were. We're ungodly. We think there's degrees of sin out there in the world. And He took on His sinless self the guilt, the shame, the rejection, the suffering, and the punishment for all of us who were not worthy to be in His presence on our own. This is what that love does. It's a sacrificial love. It's not I love you a lot. It's I, He gave His life. Yes. 
so that we might have life. He did not defend himself. Why? Because there was nothing of him left. It was all given over. So what are we to do? John 13, 34. A new commandment I have for you. That you love, same word, love one another as I have loved you. We are commanded to do the same thing for one another that He's done for us, which is to take on ourselves the guilt and the failure of our brothers and sisters that have hurt us. See, when you forgive, truly forgive somebody, that's what you do. Because when they hurt you, we want to point out their shame, their guilt, as their judge. But that's not what Christ did. Imagine if He did that with us. Went down the rows here this morning and says, let's show what you've done I got against you. No, instead He said, bring it to me, I'll take it for you to relieve you of the guilt and the shame for having violated me. When we truly forgive a brother or sister, we say, I'm willing to bear the pain of that to relieve you of it even though you the one that caused it. That's a different level of love. But that's what we're called to do. And we're talking about growing up into this image. We're talking about allowing the Spirit of God inside of us to take the seed of that life and help Him to grow that in us. We're not talking about leaving here with a list of things. Pastor John said, I got to do this and I got to do this. You'll fail. But we've got to see what the image is, the standard is, because we've lowered it so low that we begin to excuse ourselves and one another. Well, I'm trying hard. That's good. Keep trying. But you haven't reached the goal yet. You haven't reached the goal yet. They don't stop with the building when they just have the skin on the outside when they just have the, 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 the steel on the... They don't stop. They keep going until the, 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 the building department is given a final sign-off of an occupancy permit. We've now signed off. The architect signed off. Everybody signed off. What it was designed is what's now been built. And God is at work in us to do that. We're commanded to forgive one another. I want to give you two examples quickly of men in the Bible that did this. This is an example of a mature man. Moses, Moses is one, Exodus 32. It was there this morning. Exodus, this is one of the most remarkable things. The setting here is that, is that Moses is up on the mountain. I'm not going to go through this, all the scriptures. Moses, uh, Moses is in God's presence. And he left Aaron in charge, his brother. And Aaron had a problem with leadership. He, he was a leader to fill his own need and not to satisfy God. That's a weakness in a leader that becomes fatal if it's not dealt with. And the people got, says they, they got anxious, anxious because Moses, their leader, was out of their sight. Because he was up there 40 days. Hadn't seen the pastor in 40 days. He's in God's presence. But they haven't seen him in 40 days. So they go to Aaron and said, we're anxious. We need, to, we need to do something. So they said, so they, they brought their gold to him. 
the gold God had given them to build the Ark of the Covenant to worship Him. And Aaron chairmans the Build the Calf's com- Committee. And I love it, it says, because when Moses comes down, he says, what happened? He says, they, we threw the gold in and a calf came out. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but here's what happens. This is, this is so important for leaders. While, God was, while Moses was in the presence of God, God told him what was going on in the camp. And Moses goes down and deals with it. And then he comes back up on the mountain. And this is what I want to I show you. Moses, God is so ticked off at them. Moses stands between them and the people. And by the way, these are the people that had done nothing but give him trouble. They had complained against him. His own family had judged him. They, in, at one point, Moses says, God, <laughs> if this is what you've called me to do, kill me! <laughs> Take my life! That would be better. That's sometimes in frustration. Never mind. Verse 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed they're stiff-necked. Now therefore let me alone, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I might consume them. Get this picture. Moses and God, God said, God's ticked off. He says, I'm ready to, I'm going to fry them. And he could have. He says, I want to make a puddle of oil out of them. And you and I, are, I'm going to make a great nation of you. That could be pretty heady stuff. God's saying, look, all those people that have frustrated you, driven you crazy, move aside. I'm going to take care of them once and for all. And then you and I are going to go off together. Look what Moses says. And Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? I love this. There's almost a place in there where Moses is saying they're your people and God says they're your people. It's kind of like parents saying, your son. No, it's your son. Your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and by a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, this is, now he's not talking about God who's sitting in a garden, you know, drinking iced tea. God's furious. And Moses is standing up to a furious God. Why? Because his fury wasn't against him. And he says, turn from your fierce wrath and relent. One translation says, repent of this. He's telling God to repent. (laughs) Verse 13. Remember Abraham, and he goes through all, he's calling back the promises that God made. Verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do this people. He got God to change his mind. Now go over to verse 30, to, 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 down to verse 31, because that happens all over again. Then Moses returned to the Lord. Oh, these peoples have committed a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Look at what he said. This is what I want you to see. Now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray that you blot me out of your book, which you have written. 
Moses is saying... Now, he's not just saying this to somebody in a coffee shop. He's saying to the God who can do it. He said, if you will not forgive them, if you can't forgive them, then I'll take their place. This is... The, This is a man who's been used, abused, misused. But see, he has God's heart. He has this heart of character of God. And it's called humility. It's interesting. We don't have time to go there. But there's another place where, where it says, and I think it's Leviticus, uh, Numbers, where it says, Moses was the most humble man on the earth. You know who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> it's funny, but he could write that and still be humble because he was so submitted to what God said to say that he spoke it even when it was about himself and it sounded prideful. No, we don't have time. Blot me out of the book. Now there's another example of this. Mo, uh, uh, Paul does this with the church. And Paul says, he's pleading for Israel in Romans chapter 9. He says, God, I wish I could give my life for them. See, this is that kind of love that kind of love that's no longer concerned for myself, but I want your will done. It's that love of Christ. And the last thing, we won't have time to get into it, is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And stop and think about it. It's the fruit of that life of God in you to bring to the outside. And in verse 22 he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is there's no law. Verse 24. But those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Ending one another. Go back to verse 25 and we'll end here. I did a whole series on this several years ago. Jesus walked in the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit. What does that mean? When you're born again, God's nature is birthed in you. This seed is birthed in you. God's Spirit is given to you to help that seed grow and mature until the fullness of Christ in you. And walking in the Spirit is learning to walk more conscious and aware of the Spirit on the inside of you than you are the world that's around you. This is why Satan tries so hard to keep you so busy with all the affairs of this world and of life so that you don't learn how to be quiet. I'm disciplining myself now in the morning to take a slot of time and just to be still and to be quiet and to learn to listen. I put on a set of earphones and I listen to some worship music and I get drowned out every thought until I get quiet enough to begin to hear what God's saying to me because I become more conscious of the Spirit inside of me. And the more you learn to do that, you can walk. And Jesus walked so full of the Spirit, He wasn't moved by what went on around Him. Disasters happened around Him. He wasn't moved by them. He cast the demon out of a boy and, and, and he cast the demon out but you didn't see any results. It said the boy kept spinning around foaming at the mouth and everybody said, you know, oh, it's not worked and then he just stopped and fell down and they all said he's dead. But Jesus wasn't moved by that. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. Jesus wasn't moved by what he saw. 
He wasn't moved by what he felt. He wasn't moved by what people say. He was moved. He walked so in touch with the Spirit on the inside of him that he was able to do all the things he did. Remember, he did them not because he was the second person of the Son of God. He did them as a man born again, filled with the Spirit of God. And what do you think you and I are? Children of God, born again, filled with the Spirit of God. It's just that we don't live fully in touch with the Spirit inside of us. So those are the things, the, there's lots of things, lots of other things we could talk about. What is the heart of it? Let's pray. Next week we're going to talk about, okay, what do we do to help us to grow? Father, we thank you today for your grace and goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, as we hear these words, we know sometimes it can be overwhelming when we look at our own life and see how far short we fall. But that's why we're grateful for grace. That's why we're grateful for mercy. That's why we're grateful your word says that we have a merciful and compassionate high priest who's touched with all the feelings that we are because he was tempted in all the ways we are, yet he did not sin. And so he can be merciful and understanding to us. So we can come this morning to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help and grace in time of need. So Father, whatever it is, the ways we've fallen short today, things that your Spirit may have shown us as we were listening to the Word today. We bring them to you and to the cross. And Father, we ask you to, to continue to be at work in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. We remember what Paul said when he said, I press on towards the high mark, but I've not yet attained it yet. And so we thank you for the grace, the grace that we need, Father. We bring our lives to you this morning just as they are, Perhaps we've seen, Lord, that we're living our life for ourselves and we realize we can't do that. So as an act of faith, we bring our lives to you right now and say, here I am. I don't know how to do this. It may even scare me, but I come by faith and I ask you to help me and to strengthen me that I may surrender my life, the reason why I live, to live my life for you and for your glory and for your purposes. Holy Spirit, help me and strengthen me. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.